Welcome to The Pestle, reviewing and breaking down movies to look for insights into the movie-making process. Hosted by The Dollar Menu, nothing says bargain like chemicals pretending to be food. Now let's dim the lights and start the show. Welcome to The Pestle. Today's show is brought to you by Shroot Farms. You can't beat the beats at Shroot Farms. <laughs> Welcome, everyone, to The Pestle. I am Wes. And I'm Todd, and this is the podcast where we like to analyze films from the standpoint of creatives, uh, writers, filmmakers, editors, actors, um, grips, uh, PAs, <laughs> like we have worn pretty yes, much every yes. hat possible. And today we're going to be taking a look at, of course, uh, the newest from Christopher Nolan. But the reason I'm kind of jumping the gun a little bit is because we've, for the last, whatever, six months, been kind of cooped up in our apartments. And this was our first, my first time going back to a movie theater. And so I'm curious what that experience was like for you, Todd, being an avid moviegoer. Oh, man, it was wondrous. It was glorious. Uh, no, it was, you know, I guess a little scary, if I'm completely honest, just because I had never, you know, I, it had been months since I've gone to any anywhere where there were multiple people um, in a confined, enclosed space. So in that respect, yeah, but not really because it had been so many months and the, and the precautions that, that Alma was taking going back were just fantastic. So um, I felt pretty, pretty comfortable, but it was just so good to be in that environment again, to be in a dark room with a big ass screen in front of me and a bowl of popcorn in front of me or not a bowl. They do boxes now, just like whatever. Um, uh, lame. It is, it is a bit lame. Um, uh, not going to lie, but I do appreciate the care with which they're coming back. You know, they're coming back with like, there's buffer uh, seats between, um, groups and you have to buy the food up front, um, so that their, their staff aren't walking super close to people and having people whisper to them, you know, like a ton in the middle of the movie and you have to wear your mask, you know, in between eating. And, and so it was, it was, it was, it was good, but it was not the same. And I can't wait for it to get back to the same, hopefully eventually soon, but I know it's going to be a while. So yes, it was just good to be in a theater again, man. No, really same. Was. Like it definitely wasn't the same, especially for me because I didn't eat any food. I had, you know, I had to keep my mask on the whole time, um, which I gladly did. I mean, person, I guess they technically allowed people to take their mask off once they were in their seat, but I know enclosed spaces are kind of a high risk territory. Um, yeah. and so I, you know, happily kept my mask on and I use happily in quotes because uh, it was a safe thing to do, but you know, I feel like I'm just struggling to breathe uh, through half the, and I'm it's fogging up. I don't know. It's, it's uncomfortable. Most of the time I was able to kind of lose myself into the movie, but it was a certain level of discomfort because there's nothing like being able to take a nice full breath <laughs> unencumbered. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So let's get down to it. Uh, before before we we start, I want to tell everybody, this is Tenet. This is uh, Nolan's new film. We saw it before it was released. Um, we were supposed to do this episode last week, and I had some personal things going on, so what we weren't able to record, so we're doing it a week late. My apologies. However, if you haven't seen it, please pause this episode and go to you know local theater. Make sure that you you know wear your mask keep it on. And I think all theaters now, they have like this buffer seating so you can go see it indoors and, and 
don't have to worry about too much. I mean, I saw it for a second time yesterday and there were literally five people in the, th- in the whole theater. So you can still see it anyway. So please pause the episode, go watch it and then come back. Agreed. And yeah. I saw it earlier today for the third time and uh, I got to see it and I'm pretty sure I was the only person in the theater if, if not one in the very back, but I saw it at the Dolby AMC has a Dolby theater and it was the best sound system I've ever heard in a theater before in my life. It was incredible. Um, wow. Yeah. It was intense. Like, I don't know if Dude. we'll get into 10 in a second. I don't know if you go back to see that again, but just sitting in that yeah. theater, definitely worth yeah. it to me. Um, but we are going to talk about a lot of things regarding tenant. Uh, we'll touch on cinematography, including like underexposing an actor. Uh, we'll also talk about writing and storytelling um, and do some analysis of Christopher Nolan's goals or what we perceive to be his goals in this film, along with creating a solvable puzzle and other such stuff and things and stuff. Uh, synopsis of the film. Uh, okay. Uh, fighting for the survival of the entire world, a protagonist journeys through a twilight world of international espionage on a mission that will unfold in something beyond real time. Written and directed by Christopher Nolan, cinematography by Hoyte van Hoytema, starring John David Washington as the protagonist, Robert Pattinson as Neil, Elizabeth Debicki as Kat, Kenneth Branagh as Sator, Dimple Kapadia as Priya, and Aaron Taylor Johnson as Ives. All I have for you is a word. Tenet. It'll open the right doors. Some of the wrong ones, too. Use it carefully. To do what I do, I need some idea of the threat we face. As I understand it, we're trying to prevent World War III. I'm not saying I'm again here. No. Something worse. I gather you have an interest in a certain Russian national. Mike's bring me in. You really want to know? He can communicate with the future. Time travel? No. Inversion? Name it and pull the trigger. You're not shooting the bullet, you're catching it. Whoa. Well, I've seen too much. Well, we'll try and keep up. So. Right off the bat, I guess, first impressions. What did you think walking out of this thing? The first thing you're going to go straight into it, like (laughs) right into it. Uh, Yeah. So this is not a film that you can see once that I don't think that anyone can see this film once. And really, I mean, you can get the premise. That's easy. Um, But really follow all the webs of everything to the point where you could actually critique it. Like there's no, there's no way. At least I, I can't see a way. So when I when we walked out of it, you know, I look, I love anything, Nolan. It's all larger than life. It's all like, you know, uh, edge of sci fi kind of, you know, stuff. And, and we love physics and science. And so we, we know about entropy and all that stuff. So it's all very interesting. Um, so that keeps me glued to the screen like no other 
but this one was, I mean, I had so many holes. I, I couldn't even really formulate an opinion. Uh, I did go home and told my wife that, um, this, this might be, this might be my least favorite Nolan film, but that I needed to see it again to know. So gave it, you know, a couple weeks. And then I went and saw it again yesterday. And I got to say, it's so much better the second time. I mean, I, I just knowing, I don't know. I feel, I feel like, I feel like knowing what I knew after seeing it the first time, seeing it again, I was able to, to process uh, probably the same amount, but because I had already processed it once I could process kind of, you know, the new amount that I didn't get before. So I do have some issues with it uh, for sure, but I liked it so much more the second time I was, it just, my, my brain was Swiss cheese after the first time. And then after this time, it was a lot of the holes were filled in, made a lot more sense. The timelines, uh, made sense them going into the machine, like having to, I missed it. And I think uh, I'll come to this in just a second as, as to why, but I missed the explanation of they, you need to see yourself coming out of the machine before you get in or else you never came out, which was a huge deal was a huge deal for me because then that made me really get because everything happens so quickly that you forget that what you're like for example when they take cat into the machine to save her um, but they see her see themselves coming out the other side he's explaining you got to see yourself coming out or you don't come out right to me that was always a given that you would just come out but so the idea of you have to see yourself made me real, like really grasp in my brain space, the idea that, that everything on the other side that we're seeing being on this side is going backwards because it's one thing to just see it moving backwards. It's another thing to like experience the backwards movement. Right. So I, I needed to put my brain experience on the other side of the glass while in this side of the glass to really, really get everything, you know? So anyway, um, it allowed me to get a lot more out of it. And it was, it was just so much, so much better. Um, so I would say to anybody, if you've, if you've seen this and you're not sure if you like it or not or whatever, just see it again. I really enjoyed it a whole lot more the second time. I think a third time I would enjoy it even more. That being said, it's not for everyone. I think that it'll probably go over the heads of nine out of 10, eight out of 10 people that see it and not having, not having anything to do with whether or not they know what entropy is. but more to do with just being able to follow everything to get to my point that I said I was going to get to earlier. Part of the problem that I had with seeing it the first time was to be honest, seeing it in Alamo because one, there were more people there, but that's not the problem. The problem was really the sound. It just, this, this mix that a lot of times like they either had masks on or they were speaking so quickly. Um, and their music was so loud, um, in the mix it was very hard to understand what they were saying. That whole uh, interaction that happens in the beginning in the opera house, you never see his mouth move because he's got a, a mask on the whole time. You don't know who's who half the time. You know who he is because he's the only black guy, but you don't know who anybody else is. You see, so you're just trying to catch up and you're not allowed to catch up and you're not even allowed to catch up with, with the dialogue. At least I wasn't because I couldn't hear it. And I usually can hear Mm -hmm. i pay attention and i can hear these things so when i saw it second time i saw it uh, just right at the street at this uh, movie house and eatery and the sound was just way better 
Um, I think I'm not sure what the deal is in the Alamo that in that theater, I guess. I don't know. But the sound was just way better. I heard everything a lot better Um, because I'd heard it before. I was able to listen a little bit more critically and pull out a few words that I probably wouldn't have, even if I was seen it the first time there at the eatery. So, but yeah, so it was the sound and seeing it again, but also, man, okay. One of the things we love about Nolan, I'm going on tirade, but F it, you go on tirades all the time. So, um, one of the things that we love about Nolan is that he treats us as a viewer as, as like, we're going to get it right. He's just understood. We're going to get it. Don't spoon fit spoon fed spoon feed the, the, the watcher, the viewer. And I love that. I love that. Especially about this movie. I love that you don't give me anything that I have to fight for it. Cause that's the kind of viewer that I am. That being said, I don't think that everybody is. I think that a lot of people, I think that more people than not are not that way. So I don't know how good this movie is going to do because of that. And I haven't looked at the numbers or anything, but some of the times in this film where he, he switches, like he will cut massive swaths of time out and explain nothing. He will go from one side of the planet to the other and explain nothing. It's just, you get nothing. You get no, you do get some exposition and I think it's really well placed in a lot of, a lot of points. And that's great. I think you need it. But like visually, I, I'm just completely uprooted and I have to find my bearings again. And by the time I find my bearings, I have, I'm uprooted again and then I'm uprooted again. And then I have to remember being in this new scene, something that happened five scenes ago that led them to this scene. And so it's exhausting. Um, so by, you know, maybe with like 20 minutes left, I'm like, Oh my God. Okay. Okay. Now I really got to pay attention because now is the battle at the end. And I got to like, you know, follow who's who. And, and, uh, uh, Neil is going to switch sides. When does he switch sides? Do we see him switch sides? I've got to watch for him, but Oh, you know, no, I need to follow the protagonist. Cause, cause I need to know, you know, like, like what happens at the end with the guy in the hole where he sees Neil dead, but I, it, and then, you know, it's just stuff happens so fast. The camera work is so fast. The cuts are so fast and the scene switching is so fast that it's really hard to follow. So I would say that you need at least two, if not three viewings to really get it. And even at that, you might not like it, but at least you'll get it. And I love that about Nolan, man. And I love that he will take a leap of faith on you as a viewer and just, just do what he wants to do and, and put it out there. I think that um, and we, I think we talked about it and I don't know if you still feel this way, but I think that he probably should have run this by his brother, uh, the script, because his brother is unbelievable at, at like bringing the viewer along with you as opposed to dragging them along. And that's what I felt like this movie did. It drug me along with it. Now I happily went, you know, I was in chains being drugged, but I was walking briskly behind the carriage, you know, <laughs> pulling me. Um, and, uh, and I, I went and I would go anywhere with you, Chris, anywhere, take me anywhere you want to go. I'm, I'm there. Uh, but just maybe in the next one, you know, have your brother do a little bit of ghostwriting or, or just reviewing and, and whatever. And, and, um, yeah, so it's my tirade. I'm sure you're going to go deeper on your end, but that's, that's kind of the surface for me. 
Yeah, no, I agree. And it's hard to, because of all that confusion, it's impossible to enjoy the spectacle that he's presenting you because you yeah. don't understand what's happening. And so you're, you're never able to relax into it and appreciate it because you're just spending so much time confused and trying to catch up. Um, and that makes for a, a frustrating experience more than an enjoyable one, which is which sucks because he is, you know, so good at presenting these thoughtful, big budget masterpieces. Um, but at the same time, I'm same same with you, man. I'm glad that he takes those risks and believes in us, the viewer, enough to not, uh, you know, oversimplify or over spoon, spoon feed us. I would rather him make that mistake than make the other mistake of doing too much and, you know, treating us as children all the time. Unfortunately, Every once in a while, that's going to go awry. And this was his whatever, one out of 10, like uh, 10% yeah. of the time it goes wrong. I'm OK with that. That means, you know, 90% uh, of the time he's going to reward me for being thoughtful and for paying attention and coming along. Because one of the great things about Nolan films is there's usually it's going to work on two layers. The first layer as a viewer, uh, you're going to enjoy the story, the spectacle, um, and it's going to be very fun. And you're going to walk out of it with an experience that you got on a very basic level. And if you're more thoughtful, usually you can pull out deeper meanings and deeper layers from his storytelling. And here, those deeper layers are there. But unfortunately, there's so much further down because of how deep you already had to go just to appreciate the movie on a superficial level. Yeah. And I'll definitely go into uh, all of that here in a minute. But I, I had mm -hmm. the same experience. Like the second viewing was m much, much better. It was so much easier to kind of follow along. But it wasn't until the third viewing that I could understand the final action sequence, which is the entire reason I went to see it a third time. Because even during the second time, I couldn't remember who was inverted and who wasn't. Uh, and so I'm watching it and I'm things are exploding and unexploding at the same time. And I'm like, I don't I don't know who's doing what or why anyone's doing anything. Can we just start over again? Um, and it's it's a lot to, you know, to deal with. And this third time around, I was able to understand, OK, the blue team is inverted. Um, and so every time I cut to and I see blue and I had to train myself how to watch this movie. Every time I'm seeing blue, I'm watching this inverted. I'm watching it. Uh, and if it's a pincer move, and if you're not familiar with, you know, uh, Roman military tactics, a pincer move is kind of a uh, an ability or a, a tactic to pull the enemy back towards you and you surround them and cut them off uh, in the middle. And so it's a way to kind of cut them off from their supply, so to speak. And this is very bad military tactics on my part. Um, I'm simplifying and screwing it up to some degree. Uh, but the general idea is you're, you're attacking them, uh, you're surrounding and attacking them from both sides in order to surround them and uh, you know weaken their, their position. And so when you start thinking about it from a temporal level or you know time travel level, those two teams, the red team and blue team, are both attacking from a timeline from two different timelines. Like imagine, you know, the the attack is at 10 o'clock. Well, the red team uh, is starting, you know, at 950 and the, the blue team is, is starting at, you know, 1010, so to speak. And so because the blue team is inverted, they're going back through time to, you know, it's not they're starting at 1010 and experiencing 1009, 1008, 1007, 1006 because they're running backwards through time. And if you're watching that and not fully understanding that, uh, the confusion ramps up so much more because you're watching things happen at the end of the battle from, from the perspective of the blue team though, 
that's the beginning of their battle. And so you have to understand what is happening based on who it's happening to. Uh, and if you can't understand that, it, it becomes impossible. It's absolutely impossible to appreciate uh, why people are doing things. Like, why is Neil uh, reversing course? Why is he going uh, back from being inverted to, you know, uh, in proper time? And it's because he sees something while he's inverted that he knows I need to take action right now or else this, this mission is going to fail uh, at its most critical point you know, juncture. When we get to, when we get to that ending, I have a big question for you. Awesome. I am really looking forward just, to that. Um, I, don't, I don't know. It might be a stupid question there in this movie <laughs> that does not exist. There are no stupid not questions okay, in this good. dojo. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, let's kind of plow through. I have very little to talk about cinematography wise. It's obviously a very brown movie. It's a little contrasty, but it's not super contrasty. Not as much as you might think based on what you're looking at with John David Washington, the actor who plays uh, the protagonist. Because to me, uh, as a, you know, let's call myself by comparison of Hoyt van Hoytema, uh, an amateur. I'm an amateur by, you know, comparison. Uh, and to me, it looks like this is poor exposure on John David Washington, the, the actor. Uh, he looks underexposed to me um, in a lot of scenes. Like, it's one thing to not be able to expose his beard because his beard is like jet black. And so it's really hard to see details on John David Washington's beard. But there's times when even his skin is underexposed. Um, and uh, this is such a delicate thing to discuss because, you know, John David Washington's black. And historically, black people have been underexposed Uh not just from a cinematic standpoint, but even from a standpoint of having their film photographs developed at the local whatever photo store, the one hour shop because of uh, I, I think they were called Shirley cards that, you know, the 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 photos I'm completely losing what they're supposed to be called, but the developer uh usually is looking and comparing the the exposure to a Shirley card. And this is kind of the way the exposure in a developer is based on timing, how long you leave something in. And so the the developer is looking at a Shirley card as a reference point of is the the picture that I'm developing at proper exposure yet. And so if you're, for instance, shooting outside, the sky is supposed to be blue. And if they're looking at their card and trying to register the sky as their frame of reference, then they're going to make sure the sky is blue. Well, if you're black, your skin needs more reflectance and more exposure time in order to show up properly. And so if you're black taking a photograph, you're exposing for the skin tone, not for the sky. And that means whenever you take your picture, you're going to uh, overexpose the sky a little bit. And then you go and take your photos to, you know, the developer and they, ex instead of exposing for the skin, they're using their Shirley card of a white girl and they're setting the exposure to her instead of to a black person. And now their, their photographs, their portraits of themselves are underexposed and they look blacker than they actually are on film. And so this is kind of a historical problem that it needs some delicate uh, discussion around, not because... I'm impacted or necessarily uh, because Hoyt Van Hoytema and his team did something wrong, but because there's a whole world of context that you have to understand. I don't know that they necessarily didn't intend to underexpose him. But to me, 
the reason I think he was underexposed is because I'm looking at the relative actors in that scene. I'm looking at Robert Pattinson. He looks mm-hmm. perfectly exposed. I can see him in full three dimensional. Uh, you know, his his shadow looks perfectly fine. I can see his face and the details in his face perfectly fine, as opposed to the details sometimes in certain shots of John David Washington. You can't see those quite as well. And so I, uh, and again, my amateur you know mode, I'm thinking uh, they maybe underexposed him, which is incredibly rare. And I'm very likely speaking out of ignorance but i would not also at the same time blame a black person who goes to this movie and sees uh him underexposed and feel hurt like that i could understand someone being like man i can't even see Hmm. and this is like a big deal like christopher nolan has a black actor uh who isn't incredibly well known this is like a breakout opportunity for uh, john david washington who is denzel's son who is obviously well known but there's not that many a-list black actors who get this kind of opportunity this is incredibly rare to have an original film about uh, a guy a spy uh, an agent who's dealing with time travel and there's all these elements that are really cool uh and to me it's uh it's a little disappointing that uh, he just you can't see him as well as you can see some of his white counterparts um and i just think that's worth noting um and maybe this has been addressed somewhere and he's like no this is just the the tone of the film that we were going for um because he doesn't even have a name we want him to be a little uh, shady and without uh texture and maybe that's the case maybe and that you know, I'm sure there's a great artistic argument for it. I just wanted to throw it out there as a as a point of concern from uh, from my perspective. And uh, that's not mm-hmm. something I generally, you know, harp on or look to, you know, be divisive about, but maybe worth thinking about um, and arguing the counterpoint. Like, why would they have done that intentionally? Um, and I think that's an interesting idea is they didn't give this guy a name. He is just a protagonist. And maybe uh, there's just more to him than than meets the eye. And so we wanted to visually, uh, you know, keep him a little bit darker and in the shadow. Um, maybe. Maybe I think it's it's worth it's worth a discussion, I guess, is my my big point. I'm interested in that. That's weird. I didn't quite notice that. But now I want to see it a third time. I'm, I'm afraid if I see it a third time. That's going to be all I see. Yeah, right. Interesting. Yeah. Um, going into like the storytelling and the writing, before I get into what I consider to be all my issues with the film, I thought we could start at the, at the beginning when it opens on this opera house, right? There's this concert job that's kind of underway. And I found it interesting and really confusing the first two times I watched it. Um, he slams the, like the concert's about to start. The conductor is getting ready. And right before he begins, a shot rings out these you know whoever terrorists or whatever they're supposed to be storm the stage and like they abuse the instruments man like they slam the cello Mm -hmm. then the next guy stomps it like breaks it and i was really confused because that's such a a specific image and it's so detailed it doesn't feel happenstance and the best i can come up with is maybe that was nolan's way of saying he's ditching classical scores for this film. Like don't expect classical instrumentation. Um, Hans ain't scoring this one. Hans isn't involved. And yeah, we, we're doing something else. And of course, at this point, we've already ramped up this heavy, heavy rhythmic uh, electronic beat. Um, that's dope. I mean, it's it's a fun you know score to me. I, I really enjoy it. But then I also thought it was interesting that we cut to the the parking lot, right? And 
the the Russians like wake up the Americans in uh, in the back. Um, this is where protagonist does this very curious thing that I think is very telling and a key to everything we're going to be talking about later on, and which is he ejects a bullet from his gun chamber and he catches it. That's so significant, and I think it's alluding to the fact that none of the guns in this film go off. Nolan. As opposed, normally we're loading the gun. I think Christopher Nolan is unloading the gun. Um, and I found that very, very interesting uh, thematically. Um, because ultimately, this movie is about the bomb that never goes off. Right at the very end, the very last thing we hear is, no one cares about the bomb that didn't go off. And this movie, I think, is a voice in the desert that's kind of hoping to stave off our self-destruction. And this is an attempt to get us to not detonate ourselves. And I think that's kind of what he's aiming at. Uh, and you can kind of maybe even see that with the usage of the cyanide tab. When the protagonist takes it, right, he's, he's trying to kill himself and thereby protect his colleagues. It's noble. This is self-sacrifice, his attempt to help everyone and help the world by killing and self-sacrificing himself, as opposed to Seder. Seder tries to take that same cyanide tab in order to kill himself and humanity. It's selfish. And so which maybe the question that the film is, you know, lightly posing is which are which one are we? Are we willing to sacrifice ourselves for the sake of others or will we selfishly take everyone down with us? Because this is ultimately a film about the, us battling against our future selves. Um, it's the idea that we're destroying the planet and there's a, a light. I think it's a light, a uh, eco-friendly, you know, message that's, that's taking place. Uh, if you consider the rest of the elements like the wind turbines in the middle of the ocean, they're a very cool thing to shoot and they're very cinematic, but it's also interesting that it's uh, it's clean energy. It's where, our our guy goes uh the protagonist goes while he's waiting you know to pick up his his real assignment to begin his tenant uh tour so to speak um and i also think it's interesting the use of nuclear energy um i i don't know that they really make an opinion on nuclear energy to me nuclear in this context is very interesting because there's two ways to take it nuclear can be incredibly destructive or it can be incredibly clean whenever you think about, you know, clean energy. Uh, nuclear is actually very, very good, you know, compared to a lot of the other things that we're using right now. Um, but in the same way, it can be used to our ultimate destruction, right? When you start thinking about the atomic bombs and atomic detonations. And so it's an incredibly divisive and powerful uh, tool uh, that can be used for good or bad. And I find it interesting that the entire crux of this movie kind of revolves around uh, nuclear physics in, in some capacity. So let's dive in, I guess, to some of my my issues. For one, the thing that I don't usually expect going into a, a Nolan film is that this one felt pretty predictable after a certain point. Like there's flashbacks. And what we realize very soon is that flashbacks are actual foreshadowing. Uh, because in a movie about time travel, th there is no flashbacks. It's your future. Like this is what you're going to be seeing. And so we're never really surprised by finding out anything. Um, even the fact that, you know, we're, we're victorious is kind of pointed out halfway through the film in a conversation between Neil and the protagonist. He's like, isn't the very fact that we're having this conversation or that we're going uh, an indication that we're, we're victorious. And they kind of, you know, try to spin that off to say, well, we don't. I mean, you could say that, but at the same time, we don't know the effect of 
parallel universes or multiple timeline theory and mm-hmm. et cetera. So they do their best to kind of, you know, wind that clock back up. But, you know, we're we're cats out of the bag. It really is. And we're not surprised when she's the woman diving off the boat that she fan fantasized about being. Uh, that becomes pretty obvious very, very quickly, almost as the words are coming out of her mouth. You're realizing, oh, yeah, that's probably her. And Neil, right, is the one who dies saving the protagonist at the end. We there's very little shock in that. We kind of piece that together pretty quickly. And maybe the least surprising of all is the fact that the protagonist is fighting himself in that hallway fight sequence uh, at the airport. And so that that kind of hurts the heart, like to know what's going to happen before it happens. And I don't care who you are. You don't predict you don't nor other than this. You don't predict Christopher Nolan films, not his original films, not the inceptions and, uh, you know, the prestiges and, you know, interstellars like you memento. You don't predict what he's about to do to you. (laughs) And so just from that, that level, uh, that's a little bit of surprise in this movie and and somewhat of a letdown. I think another issue with with this film that I had was it was so exposition heavy. And not all of the exposition felt incredibly necessary to the to the inner workings of the film. For an example, the heist setup, uh, the whole heist setup plan is very explanatory, but with little purpose to it. And it felt like the kind of thing that they could have just jumped straight into without necessarily mm-hmm. uh, letting us know. We could have figured it out, out on every, the way. Out of everything you're going to explain, you don't need that's like you don't you don't need to explain that. Explain like what the. Yeah. It's going on everywhere else. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I get it. Um, yeah. Because you're introducing characters that ultimately don't mean anything. Like mm-hmm. I, I love the, you know, circling back to some of his favorite actors and all that. But uh, he he didn't add anything to the rest of the story. Uh, there was no reason to have him in there in the first place. And so their goal and this is the other thing that kind of confused me. Their goal was to steal the Goya fake as kind of an in with Seder. But they were also looking for inversion equipment, I guess. For for some reason, that kind of eludes me. I don't really know why they were looking for inversion equipment there. Uh, there was nothing in the Sir Michael conversation um, that told them to go to that airport in the first place. Instead, it was a conversation about you need to go. This is another one of those expositional moments that I'm like, what are we really getting, getting out of this? It felt like an excuse to go and hang out with Michael Caine. Um, mm-hmm. Not necessarily something that added up to the world and most of the exposition was like that i that i felt like we're spending time learning backstory and uh and trying to piece together this world that it was it was boring and it wasn't fun and it was hard to understand um and that is going to kind of lead me into my next I, I don't know topic i guess um but the idea of there's simple stories and there's uh complex stories and you don't tell one the same way you tell the other. Uh, so as you know, a way to explain this perhaps complex uh, film theory that I'm kind of inventing on the fly here. Imagine the complexity of a plot is like a jigsaw puzzle. So imagine a jigsaw puzzle and the more obscure your jigsaw puzzle picture, the bigger those pieces should be. You shouldn't ha- like, uh, a Jackson Pollock, if that's your in, is if what you're trying to create, right? A Jackson Pollock puzzle picture should not have 10,000 pieces. That would be the worst puzzle in the world to put together, unless you're just a maniac who loves that kind of obscurity, you know, obscure bullshit. Instead, 
for a Jackson Pollock, you probably need fewer pieces than, say, the picture of a cow. A picture of a cow is probably going to be a little bit more satisfying on a 10,000 piece level or a thousand piece level, um, as opposed to Jackson Pollock, maybe like 20 pieces. <laughs> like that, that's <laughs> so weird and so many, it's, it's so hard to understand what you're putting together that you need those pieces to be a little bit bigger. And so I think with a movie, the more simplistic the plot, the less that you need to explain it for the audience to be able to grasp it. And that adds a layer of enjoyability to the film whenever it's this very simple thing, but you have to work for it as an audience member to understand why people are doing what they're doing. Like if it's a bank robbery, you don't really need to explain, hey, we're about to rob a bank. Instead, all you really need to do is put the audience in the car with these people who aren't talking to each other that are you know, looking and they're loading weapons and you're like, oh, we're in a car, we're loading weapons. Okay. And then they throw masks on their head and you're like, oh, they're about to rob something. I wonder if it's a bank robbery. They pull up to a bank. Fuck. Okay. They're about to rob a bank and you start. And that's easy. That's a very simple picture to paint. If you're going to explain, you know, something that simple, making the audience work for it is a satisfying experience because now you're making them ask themselves questions. But if you're going to tell something complex like entropy, which is one of the most complex things you can ask an audience member to understand in science on a basic fundamental level, this is the hardest part. This is the hardest thing to understand and asking uh, a casual moviegoer to, you shouldn't even be using in this plot of this movie. You shouldn't even be saying the word entropy. Um, it's so meaningless that you're not helping your, your, your story. You're not helping your plot. Uh, you're only confusing people further. And if you, you need to just use basic time theory principles that we've heard a thousand times from a thousand other movies, because your movie is already so complex that you need to simplify it by making it easy to reference and understand. And so uh, the more complex it is, the more you should lean towards over explaining and making the exposition fun and connected to the details. For instance, in this movie in, in Tenet, a good example of this is the bullet demo right? He shows us the bullet, how it works, how it doesn't. And then he showed us with a video replay right there as uh, Barbara, um, I think played by Clemens Posey, is demonstrating him catching the bullet. And she explains to him, you need to have dropped it first. And so he works through the, the motions of, of dropping it in reverse and the bullet kind of sucks up into his hand. And it's like, okay. And then she replayed it in forwards and backwards and to help him understand the bullet doesn't understand backwards and forwards. It just understands its own direction in time. And so it's like, okay. And that works. A bad example of this is what I was talking about a minute ago with the blue team is inverted at the end and the red team is moving forwards. What? Like what they, what I think they probably could have done was to have a smaller example of that, of a pincer move in a, a smaller scaled down version. Let's have a three person scene where Neil is inverted and the protagonist is moving forward and they're attacking uh, Seder like just by themselves or attacking his bodyguard. And let's see what a temporal move, a pincer move looks like on this very small mm -hmm. scale. And now we can see what the ramifications are, what we're looking at. We're able to recognize what this person is doing and how it's affecting, you know, the protagonist while he's moving and operating. We need to see these things work on a small scale. You can't just go straight to these big uh, demonstrations and expect us to follow along. It just does not work. 
And I think he tried his best to demonstrate these things uh, and, and maybe not his best, but he tried to demonstrate these things in other other levels. But uh, the way that we were witnessing it was just too confusing, uh, like the forwards backwards scene with uh, him, the with Seder shooting cat, because you can't focus on what anyone's saying because you have him speaking and regular and then immediately followed by him speaking inverted. And it just becomes impossible to focus. I felt like I needed a shot of Ritalin or something. Um, Dude, yeah. And the mix, it was just so hard to hear what he was saying, too, because it was they were overlapping. Like yeah. you said, it's like, shit. I, I mean, I, yeah, one needs to at least level it better so I can hear him. <laughs> right. but anyway. Help me focus on what you're wanting me to focus on um, instead of just kind of throwing me into this world. Uh, and so for me, but I think the, the, the biggest sin, one of the biggest sins in this movie was that the exposition was both boring and confusing. Uh, you can't really do both and you can't do it for extended amounts of time. And he did all of that. And because of that, all, all those reasons, we can't really enjoy the moments of all when we're confused about what we're seeing. Uh, we just needed a better demonstration and a uh, much more simplified version of it to make it very firm and graspable. Mm-hmm. And there's other moments that I think are, are fun that work when we start talking about the layers that if you think about it in hindsight are really fun. They're not as fun because of all the other confusion. We're not able to appreciate these ironic moments that happened in the film because of everything is already so confusing and i think these moments work if this rest of the movie wasn't confusing but because everything was confusing we needed these moments of irony to be more properly set up for us to appreciate and be aware that they're happening and so to put some meat on the the bones here the the boat scene when cat like rips off his lifeline and shoves him out of the boat or whatever uh satyr is drowning and he's you know he's been knocked unconscious the protagonist jumps in to save him. And what we don't know, the irony, the dramatic irony that's taking place there. Well, it's not dramatic. It's just irony um, in hindsight uh, is that he's also he's not just saving Seder. He's saving humanity because if Seder dies, all of humanity uh, is, is linked to his destruction um, because of, you know, the linking of his um, his watch to the bomb, the at least the pieces of the bomb that he's already concocted. Um, mm-hmm. And likewise, we're, we don't understand that cat not killing Seder twice, by the way, uh, in the boat. And then, of course, with her gun that the protagonist gave her, um, she pulls it on him right as they're looking through all these weapons and she ends up not being able to kill him. But we don't appreciate that her not killing him also means that she's not killing humanity um, because those moments, that explanation hasn't happened yet. Um, it doesn't happen until much later in the film. So there's no setting up of the things that give us appreciation for the moments that we're witnessing. Um, mm-hmm. and so the setups aren't there. Therefore the payoffs are also not there. And the, which kind of puts us into the, the final phase of uh, the mission here, um, which is, he sets up a lot of rules to be broken that we never really break. And I think it was done by intention, but I think it was a mistake personally. And this goes into loading the gun theory. This is something we talk about a lot on the show, which is uh, if you load a gun, we want to see the gun go off. Uh, if you you know have a bomb or you throw a grenade or a, a character promises vengeance on another character, you want to see these elements come to pass in one form or another. Either they're, they need to be addressed and here they're, they're not, they're not really. 
um, in, a, in a way that's satisfying. There's no emotional satisfaction in this movie. And in an action film, you need one of the two, man. It's either got to be emotionally satisfying or it needs to be, you know, physically or, you know, this sense of all the action itself needs to be fulfilling and satisfying. Uh, so, for instance, Sater, right, threatens to kill the protagonist in this really excruciating detail, um, right? He's going to stuff his balls into a slit throat and watch him choke on it. That's the idea of this really drug out. And, of course, that never happens. Um, and we never see anybody, you know, suffer that kind of fate, which, don't get me wrong, I'm okay with. It's not something I actually want to see, but uh, it was a threat that became empty. Similar with empty threats he loads his belt right Sater pulls his belt mm -hmm. off and loads the cufflinks in there he's going to beat his wife and of course she diffuses that and even worse uh this is the worst sin to me is he also he sets up a rule with time travel movies you're always setting up rules how does this universe work what are the consequences of you know the the universe that you're constructing and one of the biggest rules he sets up is that if you if you touch yourself if your skin touches mm -hmm. you know the inverted self with the uh in, forward moving self you'll explode you, it's annihilation and we never see that demonstrated that might have been a good opportunity for Seder to you know kill himself but maybe that's too obvious and too done or whatever but it's a rule that was set up that we never break and in a similar way, I never feel like uh, whenever we're introduced to the idea of tenant and the hand signal, you know, what the warning is, it'll open up the right doors and also the, some of the wrong ones, too. It never really opens up the wrong ones. I don't think at best you can say Priya was the wrong door, but that still had its utility. That still had a part to play. So there's I wouldn't say that that was the wrong door. We also have a bomb that's built to destroy everything in going backwards in time, which is an interesting idea, because if. An inverted bomb is going backwards through time. And then that to me also means for that to work for the future people, they've begun inverting themselves and inverting their world at that point in time. So they're able to kind of move back through time and live and live that direction or something. I don't know. It was an interesting idea. Ultimately, there's no payoff there. Um, and I think going back to where we started, I think that was his intention with the. Uh, the setup of watching him unload a gun uh, at the very beginning before his first mission. I think he was making a commentary that he understands he's unloading the gun and that he's going to have a bunch of empty threats that never come to pass. And I think that was his intention. Unfortunately, it made for an immensely unsatisfying film um, in a lot of ways. Uh, that's not to say this movie doesn't have some fun to it. I enjoy it. I think my what I think is going to happen is in two to three years, this will become a bit of a cult classic. This will be a movie that ages very well. It's not something that like you were saying, Todd, that, you know, the first viewing brutal. You're going to be really unhappy that first viewing. But if you watch it again and then watch it again, there are moments of payoff. Unfortunately, there's also a lot of moments of, you know, tedium that goes along with that. But if you wanted to chop this down from a two and a half hour movie down to like an hour and 45, just shy of two hours, I think you have something that really hums along. I would have, if I was, you know, the half the genius of Nolan stepping in to give him tips, I would have said, you know what, we need to collapse some of these moments of exposition into more fun moments. Uh, either we need to have a better mm -hmm. reason to hang out with Priya 
because that's where a lot of the exposition happens is with her. Um, we need to have a better experience with her doing something. The best that he could do is kind of just have us walking around in different locations. And that was literally the best that he could come up with. And that should say a lot about those moments, because if you think back to and I meant to add a spoiler on top of the tenant spoiler, we're not going to get crazy, crazy, but it helps to compare this to Inception. So a spoiler alert for Inception, pause and go watch and listen to that or whatever. Uh, but just if you haven't seen Inception, which I would be surprised if you're watching Tenet, having not seen that, but go watch Inception and come back. But what made the exposition and in Inception so satisfying is we're watching these elements play out in a world as you're learning how the dream sequences work. You're watching yes. how those uh, those rules get broken and what the consequences are. And it adds to the tension and adds to the rest of the film and your understanding and your ability to experience all these moments that come after. When we're getting exposition from Priya, it's just background on all the players in the world. Uh, yeah. Like who's in the future and what are they... Who, who's their Oppenheimer and what is she doing and why did, why is she sacrificing herself? And it, it doesn't matter that much. It doesn't really help us understand the world that much better to enjoy this movie. I think those are the kinds of things that if you wanted to incorporate, you should have made that maybe Priya should have been the inventor. Maybe she should have been mm -hmm. the character uh, who was coming back in time to try to undo her work. Maybe, and that's kind of my first time watching this. I thought, oh, we're going to meet the inventor of this, whatever it was, uh, the algorithm that could, you know, algorithm. destroy, you know, the, the universe or whatever. Um, mm -hmm. There was just a lot of uh, clunkiness to it. Um, and to make matters worse, it's one thing to make it explanation or exposition boring and uh, clunky. The bigger sin was they also made it really hard to comprehend on a fundamental English speaking level. Like it was too clever. There too much cross talking. It was too low tone of voice. It tried to feel too self-important to some degree. Um, mm -hmm. And you were at that point, you began asking too much over the audience. You needed to uh, kind of shout it from the rooftops because of the level of complexity you should have been making it hit you over the head obvious as opposed to let's make it clever on top of being complex. The whole Michael Caine scene was just a, a mess to me. It was like so purposeless and like mentioning these people's names. Oh, this this guy and Sator and, and, and so and so. And then in the same breath mentioning mentioning Shipley's like we're all supposed to know what that is, you know, like if you're not like super learned or like have have heard of it or, you know, in passing at some point in your life, you're not going to know at all what that is. And then all of a sudden he's like watching her. It's like literally that's the cut. You know, there's like very little. You're right. There's very little purpose to the explanation. I mean, yeah, one of the wonderful things I'm glad you brought up Inception about that is like we're what like you said we're watching the excellent the uh, exposition happen mm. so like if it if if this film is really about entropy and the reversal of entropy just you know what pour cream into coffee and <laughs> show it go in reverse you know or, or like you know tell him okay now reverse that or you know like whatever at least i'm watching it happen you're explaining to me an ignorant person that has never heard of entropy before what that is if you if you feel the need to bring it up and use the word entropy 
because for, for a while, even when I had heard of it, I still didn't really understand it or know what it was because we only have the concept of time going in one direction. And like, you know, we talk about time travel, but we don't talk about reversing the direction of time as we move forward. Like that is a, that's another level above entropy. Entropy is like everything turning around and going backwards. Right. But they're talking about, there are some things that are going backwards while we are still going forwards. Like it's a whole, a whole different thing. And just seeing a bullet rise up into someone's hand does not tell me that that bullet is traveling backwards in time because you're telling me it is, you know, it doesn't explain to me that. So yeah. Yeah. I I totally get that. Yeah. There is, it was, it was very messy. And I, I think uh, this movie probably need a massive overhaul from every facet, maybe from a framework. It works in terms of uh, there's a guy who's trying to stop uh, a madman from killing himself and the, and the universe. And we're inserting this idea of reversal uh, time travel. Uh, very cool. On a fundamental framework, I think that still works. Uh, but the rest of this movie felt like a lot of busy work. We're just kind of jumping to and from locations for the sake of jumping to and from of following a, a rabbit trail. Um, we're chasing the white rabbit to some degree, and it, it just felt breathless. And there's things that are thrown out that don't make a lot of sense or that we don't have any buy in that has no payoff. Like the idea that he's supposed to be acting as a billionaire that kind of gets thrown out by, you know, Michael Caine and it gets abandoned pretty quick. Like no one buys it and it's never a thing. It's, yeah. There's just a lot of uh, fruitless exploration. It felt like it needed another set of eyes. And this would have been a good one, uh, as you were saying, to bring in his brother to say, you got to bring the audience along a little bit cleaner. These ideas are amazing, uh, but let's reframe it around a new story. Because that's the other painful part is we get to the very end and the emotional payoff isn't really there. I don't feel alleviated that Kat has, uh, you know, survived uh, her abusive you know maniac of a husband and you know has her kid i i get very re- little relief out of that i get very little of you know uh, the pr- protagonist killing priya and her hitman um there's just i don't leave this movie feeling anything other than i guess frustration especially the first time mm-hmm. um and even on mm-hmm. repeated viewings i still don't get those e- moments of elation because i'm watching cat kind of kill her husband and i'm like this feels irresponsible this doesn't feel like the the right thing that she should be doing um for the for the greater good it so she almost destroyed everyone yeah and then on top of that and this is kind of uh an insult to injury uh from my from me um the the scene where you know she slides him off the deck and into the water that scene just does not work you know him kind of hitting the railing and it doesn't look right it might mechanically be accurate uh but it looks a little silly and uh, i would have filmed that a little differently um i might have just instead of seeing him slip and slide and bonk his head i might have just shot it from underneath the water i know it's a little more basic but from underneath the water seeing her begin to push him off the deck and then cut to under the water 
him splashing down lifelessly. I think that's fine. It works. And it doesn't take me out of the movie and saying, oh, that looks silly. Um, Because as silly as I may sound saying that, it's a practical reality whenever you're dealing with an audience. You have to make sure you never give them a reason to eject from the suspension of disbelief. Um, And so I think there's some misstep on on the directing part. Well, it's a really good point because the other thing is that Nolan is not, he's not gory. Mm -hmm. And that was a pretty... I mean, it was a pretty gory shot. It was like, yeah. like the way he bent was, I mean, yeah, it was obviously a dummy, but I'm just saying like, yeah, if I'm imagining a real person and that's pretty gory, it's pretty brutal. And I just have never known him to be that way. So that shot did feel out of, out of place. I, w- um, I will say, yeah. and this will be my last note and we can, I want to get to the question that you had at the beginning. All right. But one thing I, w- I want to end on a good note because there's one thing he did in this that I, I actually really love, um, which is the fight sequence between the protagonist and himself in the, uh, the, the outpost or whatever the, the airport was. This was really clever because if you understand what's happening, on both iterations uh, from both perspectives, it makes so much sense from the perspective the first time around, whenever he begins that fight sequence, he's losing. He's getting his ass beat by the, the inverted man. And that makes, and it takes him a little while to get used to fighting the inverted man. And then he starts whooping his ass. So there's a learning curve that's happening on both ends of this fight. Um, because if you invert it and you go back and you, you're on the second half as the inverted man going through at first, you're getting your ass kicked. You don't know how to fight as an inverted person yet. And so it takes you halfway into the fight before you get the upper hand. You start learning, Oh, this is how it operates now. And you start beating his ass. So as you're getting better, the, uh, the other person is getting worse. And so the upper hand switches midway through that fight and it makes complete logical sense and it works on a mechanical level pretty, pretty well. And I think it's a very intelligent, uh, framework to take into that action sequence. Uh, and so I thought that was just, you know, brilliant. And I, part of me wonders if he spent too much time drawing up some of these moments and not enough time thinking through the, the story elements. I think that's probably what mm-hmm. happened. He got lost in the details of the sequences instead of losing himself in the, in the storytelling, um, macro level view. Yeah. I totally agree. I mean, the, the brain like function that you have to have, <laughs> not just as a director, but as a producer to like, make sure that these shots work with each other is just on. I, I can't comprehend it still yeah. after two watching it twice. I'm sure it all makes sense, but there's so much of it that uh, I just, you know, if I wrote it would take me forever to figure it out, to get it right. You know what I mean? So, yeah, I think that he definitely went down a a rabbit hole in so many of these scenes to get it to seem that way, to be that way. Right. It just, yeah, I could only imagine what this, what writing the script was like, like that had to be, I mean, what, Oh, I can only imagine what doing a shot list would be like for this film. Like, just that. And I'm pretty confident he spent a lot of time with the actors getting them to learn how to move backwards for certain sections. Yeah. Like there's a scene where, you know, they're inverted and they're running into the airport um, with Cat on the stretcher, right? And we're seeing everything reverse. When in reality, how they shot that, right, is probably 
uh, in reverse. Like they shot them running backwards so that uh, and they have to rehearse. They have to rehearse what your body looks like running forwards and how to emulate that backwards. Um, And there's several scenes like that. And it works really, really well. Um, There's a scene where he's doing pull ups on the ship and we're going ship. I was going to say that. Yeah, it's great. He kills it because he has to walk down the stairs backwards and walk backwards up to the pull-up bar and then turn around and do pull-ups. And luckily the pull-ups look probably the same, whether you're going forwards or backwards, but he has to execute that while there's a helicopter move. Like that's, yeah, uh, that's intense, man. (laughs) Yeah. It's awesome. Awesome. I mean, the way they did the reverse stuff, I would like to see, have seen more of people going in reverse so that they're going forward. I would like to have seen that more yeah. even like, you know, but I like that kind of stuff. Yeah. Like I can tell, yeah. I can tell when they're going, you know, whatever, mm-hmm. but I just love like the, the practicality of it. You know, right now I'm watching the star Wars saga with my son. He's like, so into it, dude. Like he <laughs> was so sad that he couldn't watch one tonight. Um, he was crying, um, but we're only through the first three and he's like in it, bro. He's oh, in man. it. That's which, so cool. I'm glad he likes the first three because we're going to go down a freaking rabbit hole. Um, but my my point is that just the, like watching those first, at least the first two, everything is so practical, except all the all the stuff that was added in, you know, later in the 2000s. Mm-hmm. It's so practical. It was just so beautifully done. I don't care if I know that it's a puppet. It's like it's the effort that I can yeah. see. It's so great. Well, OK, so I was going to ask you two things, really. The first thing is, did you catch at the end there? Like, I, not that I think there will be a sequel, but the possibility of maybe a sequel of them saying it, it's, you know, we're going through one big, this whole thing is one big pincer move and, and we're only halfway through it. Um, and I thought you know, about that. It was yeah. just like, yeah. And then they split up the, the algorithm. They don't destroy it, you know, for whatever reason, why wouldn't you destroy this thing? I don't know. Um, the, but the, I yeah. so I I thought a lot about that one. The best I could come up with is that it does contain like nuclear uh, PU two two forty one, um, which yeah. is you know highly radioactive. And so maybe it's a concern for if in order to destroy it, they would have to involve more people. And I don't but know. But here's the thing: only one piece had the two forty one ah. because it was just it was just like a quarter of a of a kilo remember that that was stolen so it was just like right. a little bit and it was just one so just destroy one of the pieces like i don't and get we're it done yeah <laughs> and we're done um the second thing is that i don't understand the bomb situation so i would need you to explain it to me because the end because i the whole thing i don't understand why they need to stop a bomb and this is why because if in order for to do a pincer move on something like a bomb going off that means that a team had to go had to like let it happen and go forward and then come backwards does right. that make sense the the blue team going in reverse had to go to five hours ahead or whatever past when the bomb was going to go off and then come backwards mm-hmm. if they went they couldn't go past where it went off because then they would already be going backwards because entropy would be reversed. Right? Am I wrong? And that might go back to the whole grandfather paradox that they kind of threw out there. But I will say 
I believe they always intended for that bomb to go off. The that was a part of their fake out. They said that uh, we want them to believe that we're trying to prevent the bomb from going off. And that's a distraction while they while the splinter team goes in to actually remove the actual, you know, problem child, the nuclear bomb. The algorithm. Yeah, the algorithm. Oh, um, yeah. And so the nice thing about that big bomb going off up top was that it was going to bury. And this was their intention um, from the beginning. They wanted to bury that bomb. Uh, in order to give it back to the, the the future people, that was their their drop, the dead drop, that they were trying to pass things off to the people of the future, um, and by delivering that to them, that would be. Uh, I don't know. I feel like I just lost myself because the yeah. the goal was for him to kill himself and also the the rest of the world. But how is setting off a bomb gonna gonna activate the algorithm? I think the the bomb detonating from let's look at it from Sater's point of view. Yes. His goal was to bury the algorithm so that nobody could touch it before he decided to uh, detonate it. And so he had his people like, hey, go deliver this payload. And he probably lied or whatever. This is I don't think it's covered in the movie, but his people are executing his plan of go bury this bomb at, at the dead drop. And in his mind, he's thinking, and then I'm going to kill everyone. All of y'all are about to die. And so from his minion standpoint, they're they're just trying to bury this bomb um, and detonate it so that no one can, ac- can access it. This will be lost forever to everyone uh, for all intents and purposes. And so our team is going through. They want to make believe that, yeah, we're trying to prevent this bomb. But we're going to send a splinter team to go recover the algorithm and still let the bomb go off. Um, and so that no one is tempted to go and explore or whatever. They won't find anything anyway, but uh, they will leave us alone and we can make our escape with them thinking they that they've won. And so they don't need a total victory. They just need for their plan to go off without continuing a fight, so to speak. Beyond that, I got nothing. <laughs> like, I don't know. Uh I still don't get it. Yeah. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. I just still, I still, what does a bomb have to do with it? I get, okay, you're going to bury it. So nobody today finds it. And then the future people find it. But what's the point of a bomb? To, I mean, I guess to kill everybody, but that's there. So nobody knows where it is, but I, yeah. because he's it's, got it's, all it's these dead drops like really set up confusing. all over the, all over the world, I guess. Uh, and then, and then how did how did the protagonist know where he said they they said uh, Neil said said, you know, asked him where it was when they were on the boat. And he said, you know, you don't need to know that. Like we're supposed to, he's keeping it close to the chest. That kind of. Br- so he knew where. Yeah, that brings up, I think, the bigger issue storytelling mechanics wise. Uh, this whole movie is built on a paradox because the protagonist yeah. is the one who recruits Neil. But in reality, the protagonist recruits himself into the process because this thing, whole thing is already underway whenever he joins yeah. in. And so there's a causality issue at, at, at the heart of it. And if he was going to make a sequel, which I would be highly surprised if this got greenlit for a sequel uh, based yeah. on how it's not going to perform, then that would be where he would need to follow up and explain the mechanics of how this mission begins when in fact its creator uh, is brought into it midway. Well, I think he's, he says, 
it feels like he says things he's saying multiple times that he he doesn't believe in the grandfather par- paradox where he thinks that oh, you can, the protagonist you, you is can, saying that yeah the protagonist mm. you can go back in time and kill your grandfather and everything's okay because it just starts another timeline mm. because because of the paradox of him recruiting himself into something that didn't exist before you know like yeah. and then at the end of the, of the people letting the bomb explode and the and the thing the um the algorithm get buried five hours from now and then going backwards that place shouldn't be there if the bomb if a nuclear bomb actually went off so so i think by the logic of this world it's all circular it's all mm. time happens because it happens not necessarily because there is yes. causality at stake i think that's kind of the right. argument because that's how you know cat saw herself diving in the first place um because mm-hmm. that moment for her hadn't happened yet, hadn't triggered. And so I think that's kind of their excuses. Time happens because it happens, not because there's any, you know, button pusher. And so, and in that way, I feel like, uh, and I mentioned this after the first time I watched it, I think there's some kinship with T.H. White's The Once and Future King. The This is a story about King Arthur. And in T.H. White's version, Merlin is going backwards through time. And so the first time he meets King Arthur uh, in the book, King Arthur's meeting him for the first time. But for Merlin, this is a goodbye. This isn't a, a hello and a greeting. And so it's perspective shifting. And so I felt and the reason I bring that up is I remember the first time uh, I read that in, in freshman English, my teacher said before we ever open the book, he's like, OK, we're about to encounter a character and here's what's happening. He's going backwards through time. No, he doesn't talk backwards. No, he doesn't walk backwards. He just is. And it's not going to pay off for you to think too hard about it. (laughs) He's like, it's just going to hurt yourself. Don't do it. Just understand that's what's happening Mm -hmm. and let it go. Um, And so in that way, I think Christopher Nolan is wanting us to let go. Uh, And I think he says as much a few times in the movie. Don't think about it too much. Like that's what Neil's character says. Yeah, but you can't. Yeah, but you can't you can't give me all the shit you give me in this movie and make me think so fucking hard and then tell me to let go. Yeah. Like, sorry about it, man. Yeah. If you're going to explain everything else ad nauseum and make it like like, you know, try to pull me along with you, then you got to also expect that I'm going to ask these questions at, at the end about how, you know, how they go past the bomb and then come back like this shouldn't you know, it should be explained or at least give me a theory yeah you know give me your theory so that's the pain uh, of writing a movie with so many details is because once mm -hmm. you open up that box you're right he owes it he owes you more answers and more explanation yeah and so i mean maybe it's there and we just missed it uh but to be fair there's a lot there (laughs) yeah i mean between the two of us we've seen it five times and we're still you know answerless on a lot of things um uh and not in a good way so uh yeah i mean like i said uh to end this really quickly like because this has been a long one um it it's always always an experience going to see a nolan film anything the man puts out i'm gonna go and see and i'm going to try to like like that's the thing it's like it's not it's not that i want to shit on it no it's i want to like it yeah we walk into this movie expecting something that we love 
uh, and to mm-hmm. walk out excited about. And everyone does. Uh, that's the fun thing. The one thing that worries me about this movie is I hope this doesn't prevent him from he's almost all we have when it comes to big budget sci-fi original films. He's not yeah. adapting anybody else's book or anybody else's ideas. These are just his pure ideas. And it would really hurt my heart to see, oh, they spent, you know, however much money in Hollywood his Warner Brothers is no longer going to let him, you know, create movies of this caliber. They'll find another. They'll find another. I would hope. I like, would hope he's got enough yeah. in the tank, you know, historically that people are like, yeah, you know what? You can fail a few more times and we'll be okay with that. I'm curious. About I mean, that. what I'd like to see from him is something like Tenet, but on a small scale, like, so he's gone so big, you know, what if you go the, go tiny, like, you know, the complete opposite direction, whatever that means could mean physical. It could mean emotional. It could mean whatever. I don't know, but he's done everything from take us to other galaxies to other times to within our dreams to like all these places. It's like, these are all wonderful places and I want, I can't wait to see what's next, you know, but if you're going to write this yourself, like you said earlier, let's get back to brass tacks. Let's get back to story writing, man, because you can write this, the most complex film. This is literally the most complex film. I think I might have ever seen. I can't think of another one that's more complex Primer, and the yet, only one I would say that's at, all around this, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen Primer. Mm-hmm. Uh, right, right, right. The super low budget. And I was going to recommend it this week, but I've already recommended it before. This That's the closest I can get. And this, to your point, is still much more convoluted and complicated. Yeah. And, and then you have other films that are so simple. They're about one thing. Yeah. And you don't have... You're, you know, you're not spoon fed anything or taken out of the film in any way. And it's, it's all very focused on one thing. And I can think of probably five off the top of my head that are just fantastic, that are timeless, that I love. And I walk out like buried by, and they're so simple. And I I just think like, if he can do so much with so much, imagine what he could do if he could, if it just was focused on one thing, him and his brother, you know, it's, like I was telling you, I was telling you before, um, we started this, this recording, like, I think I'm a decent writer, but when I send a track to Scott, to my old guitarist, it's like, it's like, I didn't even write the song at all. It's like, I I only had the bones and he filled it in with the flesh when he tracks his guitar on it. And I, I have a, I have a guy that I feel like that about. And I, I work with him, you know, I, we sold some songs, um, and I'm going to pay him for it. And, you know, if we don't sell the songs and we're just writing music together and it's fine. Um, mm-hmm. but if we sell, if we make money, then he gets it too. And I feel like he should, I mean, maybe this was a pet project of his he'd had for a long time and he just wanted to do it himself. And I get that. And he has enough clout to do that, but man, you and your brother work fantastically together. He is the story guy. You are the idea guy and he takes it and he makes it digestible. And I just would recommend that he, cause I know you're listening, Chris. Um, <laughs> I re- just recommend that, you know, you just go back to working with him, man. I think that he brings the best out of you and you bring the best out of him. And it just so happens that your brothers, I mean, why not 
you know, continue, you know, that professional relationship when everyone loves everything you guys both do. Much you sense. No, absolutely. And part of me wonders, and I feel like this is coming from my own uh, ego, my id, um, that there is something addictive. And I'm speaking again from my perspective about having at the end in the titles, the first thing that pops up on screen, it says written and directed by your name. Mm. And in order yeah. to get that written and directed by, not just directed by, but written and directed, you have to do everything. You have to come up with a story. And that's not to say you can't soundboard and, you know, get feedback, but you can't bring anyone else into the writer's room. You got to write the script yourself. And uh, that's that's part of the I labor hope, of getting all the credit. I would, I would hope that he wouldn't do that shit. I would hope so, too. I mean, he's certainly shared credit, you know, in past films. But, yeah, I would hope that he's he cares more about telling a good story than he does about uh, having his ego fed with written and directed by, but yeah, I mean, it's because it's one thing, bro. It's one thing for you who maybe on a big screen, if, if you either, maybe you haven't seen that on a big screen and you want that experience in your life, that's one thing. And you've worked really hard on it and you've spent years on it and stuff like that. And it's your baby and it's, and you've never made a feature length film and you want that experience, but you just can't get this last you know, scene to work and you really want to hand it off to somebody, you're like, F that, no way I'm finishing this. I get that. And you know what? More power to you. It's another thing. If you've had multiple blockbuster, timeless films that everyone loves and you've, you have done this before and you have seen your name up there before to do that. So I totally get that. And maybe that's what happened. And that would be the saddest part about it because I think that this has so much had so much legs and so much potential i was yeah but you're right he has nothing left to prove and so i yeah. i wouldn't imagine that was where his mind goes but uh again, you, you never know perspective <laughs> dude uh, thank you for making it because you never know and uh, maybe it was you know yeah. and, and maybe even for him like i said maybe he wrote most of it mm. and he just was so done with it that he didn't want to do it anymore and so he's just like, nope, we're making it as is. Yeah. Made a call. Who knows? Yeah. I don't know. The studio Warner Brothers might come and say, hey, we we want to release this, you know, in the summer of 2020. Uh, we need you to get on the ball. And at a certain point, you have to start making things and uh, locking a script, yeah. even if you don't feel like it's ready. I don't know if he would operate that way, but sometimes to keep the ability to have favor with your studio, I can imagine you make some compromises uh, every once in a while. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm sure he's made films that he wasn't crazy about making, but I feel like he did Batman just as a way to get to make inception and the prestige. And yeah, mm-hmm. um, that gave him a lot of weight and favor with the, you know, the studio system anyway. So I think we've beat down on our favorite director uh, long enough. <laughs> yeah what what are you gonna recommend this week (laughs) that that hurt yeah i'm gonna recommend a a different a a movie that kind of did this but did it in a not a time sort of way but in a a, just a a totally different way that's just fantastic and to this day is um one of my favorite movies that does this kind of thing it's kind of like filling in piece puzzle pieces can you guess it the game no. Oh, okay. Memento. Ah. Memento. I loved that film. I thought it was um, really heady 
but not so heady that I didn't get it. And I thought the acting was fantastic. Just the, the concept of it was really great for, especially for the time. I think that since then a lot of stuff has been done to maybe water it down. So maybe if you hadn't seen it yet and this, you're seeing it for the first time, it might feel dated just because others have tried to copy it. But keep in mind when you watch it, this was one of the first times that this was, this concept was really done to this to this level yeah. of production. Um, I can't think of anything before that, that really came close to, to painting it in that, that, you know, large of a, large of a light. So yeah. Memento. Agreed. Great recommendation. And if you've never seen following, cause Memento is what put me on to Nolan. I was like, Oh my God, what did I mm-hmm. just watch? And then immediately I think I tracked down uh, the movie that allowed him to make Memento, which was following. And maybe at some point we'll, we'll do that in the not too distant future. Um, we'll probably do both. Um, we're, we're trying to save some Nolan up, <laughs> but we'll get to it. Um, I'm going to recommend a Tony Scott film starring Robert Redford and Brad Pitt. It's called spy game. And so Uh, with spy films and espionage it's always you know this uh, world of confusion and uh, like what's happening and there's layers of competing interests at at stake and and in tenant as we've you know belabored uh, it doesn't really come through all not just all the stakes but all the what the hell is happeningness of it all (laughs) and so I think with spy game it kind of does a a similar thing except all the pieces are there and they're easier to grasp and there's some more aha moments now I'm not saying it's the greatest movie ever made I personally really love that movie though Um, I love everyone in it I love all the performances I love uh, the stakes and the payoffs Um, I just think it's a really wonderful uh, movie that no one ever thinks about and I do want to cover it at some point in the future but uh, we'll get to that there's a lot of Tony Scott left to cover uh, as well Um, and so yeah go watch Spy Game if you have never seen that and stay tuned for next week when we tackle the actual apocalypse what they couldn't do in Tenet they achieve in I Am Legend like we end the world Mm -hmm. and so stay tuned next week when we cover that Uh, and don't forget to subscribe leave us a note if you want to talk about a thing or a movie Uh, we did get a request for Memento which uh, we will get to uh, probably before the end of the year as I continue working on uh, my first script, my first big script, uh, which we'll talk about in a couple of weeks, not next week, but we'll talk about it the week after <laughs> we're doing a temporal pincer move on the podcast. If y'all didn't know, yeah, we, are. we already recorded <laughs> next week's episode <laughs> and we're attacking it from the other side. Yeah. So, <laughs> and so, uh, stay tuned for, to hear a little bit more about my, my adventures in that. But if you want to leave us a, a comment about why you loved or hated or think, uh, you know, we're wrong about tenant. You can do that at the pestlepodcast.com slash tenant. And I love this quote. We're going to leave it, uh, leave you with a quote from Alfred Hitchcock. Always make the audience suffer as much as possible. Check. No, I'm just kidding. I'm <laughs> no, just kidding. That's why I put it. I thought uh, there's a great irony in there. Um, yes. You yes. Know, just because I knew the way this conversation was going to go. <laughs> yes. There, it, there was suffrage. However, <laughs> it was, I mean, I think I enjoyed it more than Maybe more than you did. I, I just maybe not. But you were. I feel like you were more critical about the details than I was. But I. I, I mean, I enjoyed it. I would see it again, just because I. Don't, I think I could see it five or six times and not, and still not fully get it. So yeah, no. In that way, 
there's I have albums that I listen to and that I love, uh, like my favorite album of all time, which you'll hear in two weeks uh, as a recommendation. I've heard it, I don't know, 600 times maybe. And I don't know all the words, but I do it on purpose. And that makes it still fresh and interesting every time I listen to it is because I don't know what's going to happen next. You don't know the words. Yeah, it's a it's a rap album. And I purposely just kind of listen to what he's saying. And I I think memorizing and learning a song uh, comes through repetition. And I never try to get that repetition in. Um, Mm -hmm. And so with this movie, I feel like I'll enjoy it. And you're right, man, I I do enjoy it. and I do want to watch it again, probably not for the reasons that maybe Nolan intended, but maybe maybe he wanted to, you know, to make a movie that was a little bit like a, a manual that you had to uh, read over and over again to appreciate the finer workings of it. I that would kind of mm. surprise me, to be honest, but but it works for me like I don't mind having to learn a movie when I watch Primer. I usually watch it, watch it two times in a row because every time I watch it. It takes me watching it to understand what I'm watching. Um, I need to go watch that movie again. Seriously. Like we'll be covering that in the, within the next couple months. Um, yeah. Why haven't we done that? Uh, I think we brought it up. I think you in particular have brought it up yeah. pro- five or six times. <laughs> yeah, that's Maybe probably more. True. Uh, that's a really inspirational movie for me. And uh, I don't think I was saving it for this reason, but I'm going to use it for the reason of I, I'm going to want to do a series um on first first movies like directors who made their mark uh with their first movie and you know big breakout successes and i want to do a series on that so that i can study and try to learn what are they doing that's working um and how can i learn from that whenever i go to make you know my first movie uh and primer is such a good example of that and i'm hoping to start a series within the next several months where we are able to get on directors. I'd love to have Shane Carruth on, uh, maybe not on the episode that we cover primer, but maybe as a follow-up, maybe we get them on as a follow-up after, our, you know, I've done my analysis and I've weighed in and they can come in and say, no, you screwed it up. Here's, here's what I was actually thinking. Um, we did that shot because, uh, we ran out of time, not because it represented what you thought it represented. <laughs> like, right. Um, right. But right. I love that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Well, cool, man. This has been, this has been fun. Same. It, it was a little painful. Yeah. Um, but you know, it has to be done. Yeah. And, and I, I really enjoyed all of your, your feedback and all of your thoughts on all this stuff. So, so thank you for that insight, man. Thanks, man. Absolutely. So guys, thank you for going along this journey with us. Um, please join us next week. We're covering I Am Legend, so make sure to watch that before the episode drops. Uh, and like Wes said, leave us a review, leave us a note, um, tell us what you think, what you like, what you don't like. We read it all. So thank you very much for all of our supporters out there. We appreciate it. Until next week, I'm Todd. I'm Wes. Go watch some movies. Mm-hmm.